KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm Raquel Williams. Last month, Temple University received a grant for construction of the Center for Anti-Racism Research. The center will tackle some of the toughest topics concerning racism, and they plan on coming up with solutions as well. We're going to look at how does racism play out into various facets of society. Our newsmaker this week is a curator of the Lest We Forget Museum of Slavery. The curator also has a direct link to Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Massacre. Our young people really need to know this history. It's not something that should be KYW's Antoinette Lee has our changemaker of the week who is making a huge impact. It's a half hour you don't want to miss, and it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Last month, Temple University received a $1.3 million grant for construction of the Center for Anti-Racism Research. This is the part of the university's investment into anti-racism education and programming, which in this climate is sorely needed. The center is headed up by Timothy Welbeck, who is also an attorney and assistant professor of instruction at Temple. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, this is exciting news and, of course, a fresh new effort for you to lead. Uh, Tell me about how you feel about this new opportunity, you going ahead and and, um, leading this center. I'm thrilled for the opportunity and just grateful for the chance to do this important work. I consider it to be the most important work of our day. Uh, Naturally, we want and envision a world where we don't have to do the work of anti-racism and do the work of civil rights. But while there is a need for that, I'm grateful for the chance to be in this position to help lead the efforts towards making both our city, our university and our world a better place. So let's talk in detail about what the center is going to be uh, designed to do exactly. Mm So the Center for Anti-Racism Research at Temple University is designed to do just that, to produce anti-racism scholarship. I envision our work transpiring in three tiers. And so we're a university, so we'll produce traditional scholarship studies and journal articles and the like. But that's just for me, the first phase of the work. I also want to make the work that we create, particularly the scholarship, accessible to the public and as an effort to help fortify the public's understanding of what it means we're talking about when you talk about racism and structural racism, anti-racism research or anti-racism work, what does it mean to be racist? We want to work towards helping the public understand that. And so the second tier of our work will be centered around that. We'll do public facing events. We'll do social media campaigns, instructional videos, public lectures that we'll make available to the public, all in a sense of making some of this scholarship accessible to the public. And then lastly, we want to be a good neighbor to our community in North Philadelphia. So we want to leverage some of the resources of Temple University to help meet some of the tangible needs of those impacted by structural and systemic racism and not only use our resources to combat that, but even study its impact. So as we advocate for new policies and new solutions, we can be informed by practices that we've tested. So that's the work as I envision it and excited to be able to begin it. You know, there are people that don't want this 
being taught. <laughs> they don't want racism. Yeah. Can we get over this? Can we move on? Can we stop? Can we just stop talking about this? There are some people that don't want to even talk about uh, some of the root causes uh, of racism. So this is going to be quite the goal. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that you're right. We're in the middle of a moral panic that I often say is is using critical race theory as an intellectual boogeyman to stifle and suppress any meaningful discussions about racism and the history of racism in our nation. And much of that is in direct response to the rise of anti-racism research and education and diversity, equity, and inclusion work that became more popular in the racial awakening that happened after the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Damon Arbery. And to be perfectly honest, many of the purveyors of this, these mischaracterizations have, have admitted as much. Christopher Rufo, one of the, I guess, leading critics of critical race theory, has gone on social media and said as much. And that was the aim of this moral panic that's been created. But much of it all stems from just a failure to reckon with the history of our nation and how that impacts our present. And we won't be able to have a better present or future until we deal with what led us to where we are right now. You know, you mentioned um, George Floyd, and I was just talking with the head of the Atlantic City NAACP last week, and he was our guest. And we were talking about that that shift that happened, that, um, I guess, global awakening, uh, at least the fact that everyone across the globe got to see what we had been talking about and we had been marching about and, and fighting about uh for, for years, they actually got to see this uh, play out. And, you know, some of the changes that took place after that, um, you know, the whole woke movement, if you will. <laughs> I'm going to ask you that same question that I asked um, our, our last guest. Uh, is this something that you think is, is going to last and is going to stick? And it's not just the quote unquote flavor of the month, if you know what I mean? That's an excellent question. My hope is that we will continue to learn from this moment and to use it as a catalyzing effort to help create a better understanding of the world that we live in and how to create a better one. But we're committed to do the work, regardless of whether it's the flavor of the month, regardless of whether people move on, we're committed to doing the work as it is needed. But my hope is that people have a continued interest and a continued passion and zeal towards these efforts. But if our current climate is any indication of that, it does look like much of the attention and enthusiasm is beginning to wane. And of course, you know, the first thing you said is what is racism? That's that's something that you're going to be focusing on. And, and racism has changed, at least the face of racism has changed over the years. It's no longer overt in some respects. And, and then you have systemic racism, as you mentioned uh, of course, which is, that's a difficult nut to crack, um, systemic racism, and of course, unconscious bias that goes along with that. There, There's so many different angles of which you can uh, use to hit this topic. Uh, maybe you can talk a, a little bit more about the different ways you're going to try to tackle this. I'm just looking at it as such a big mountain of <laughs> yes. of work that you're going to be doing. So you just take off little bites, I guess, and start with the whole what is racism. That is, that is a great way to frame this. And you're right. It is a mountain that's in front of us. And you said taking things one bite at a time. I often tell people that an old African proverb says you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And that's exactly how we intend to approach this work, looking at 
what is the idea of racism, the idea of inherently ascribing inferiority or superiority to one group of people based on racial classifications. And then when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about how these myths about inherent inferiority or or superiority based on these arbitrary um, categorizations and classifications, how that then leads to systems of disenfranchisement and leads to system of empowerment for some in relation to the erosion of rights and privileges for others. And so we're going to look at how does racism and considerations of race and class and caste, racial caste, how does that play out into various facets of society, the criminal justice system, medicine, education, and other forms of public policy. And so that's actually one of the things that I'm most thrilled about and that much of our work will be collaborative and that I intend to partner with a cross-section of faculty and staff across the university as we're beginning to tackle these questions, answer these questions, and even begin to devise solutions so we can look at best practices and even enhance our understanding based on an array of scholarship from various fields. What work are you currently doing, Timothy, to get this center up and running? It's April that it's going to be up and running, correct? So the construction is scheduled for completion by April. And as as it relates to the work that we're doing right now, we're working on a lot of the administrative infrastructure. So looking at reporting structures, funding sources, eventually staffing needs and the like. Um, further articulating the vision and documenting it and looking for ways to to partner with other resources on campus. That's much of the work that's happening right now. And we envision doing a grand opening sometime in the fall after we've had an opportunity to answer some of those fundamental questions and begin to lay a groundwork. And so while the physical center is scheduled for completion, In April, we're still looking to make it more readily available to the public and do a grand announcement a bit later. And that's in part even because of the timing. The semester ends for us in mid-May. And so the projection is mid-April. And so in order to be able to further galvanize some of the attention and also be able to incorporate some of our various partners in the community, we want to have time to plan that accordingly. Talk about uh, how this all came to fruition. In the summer of 2020, much of the nation was reeling from the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Maude Arbery, among others. And so the leadership of our department, particularly Dr. Maleficenti Asante, who was our chair, petitioned the university's administration about putting action behind its words. Temple, like other institutions, put forth an anti-racism statement and also statements just affirming diversity, equity, inclusion work. And so Dr. Santi, along with other faculty members like Dr. Nadav and Dr. Nimani Nahusi and uh, myself and some of our graduate students came together and issued statements as a means in which to compel Temple to not just talk about the work of anti-racism, but to make some type of firm commitment. Dr. Asante pitched the idea of creating a center for anti-racism research, and our former president, uh, Richard Engler, uh, actually made a commitment as one of his outgoing initiatives to earmark funds towards the creation of a center. And so that's how much of this began. And from there, there there have been questions about how to go about doing the work, how would the center be organized, what would be its leadership structure, what entities in the university would house it, 
who would lead it. And so we've been actively working to answer those questions um, since that period of time. In the fall of last year, in August, I was fortunate enough to receive an offer to become the director of the center. And so after working towards creating that infrastructure and creating a means in which to actually run the center, I'm at the table, so to speak, as we are making some of those decisions. I think Philadelphia is a perfect place for this. And I'm wondering, you know, since it's the most impoverished in the nation uh, and it's dealing with a lot of violent crime, how will what's going on in the streets of Philadelphia kind of coincide with the studies that you'll be doing and linking all of that into racism? I'm so glad you said that. Um, As you mentioned, Philadelphia is the poorest big city in America. And much of the ills that people complain about of the city emanate from that reality. And so I've already begun having conversations with the Public Health Law Center and other um, legal scholars in the law school and scholars in the Criminal Justice um, Center, uh, Criminal Justice Department and public safety in campus to look at how can we help address some of these issues, particularly in our neighborhood. We at Temple University have not always been a good neighbor to North Philadelphia. And so one of the ways that we as a Center for Anti-Racism Research can work is look at what are some of the causal links between this explosion of of, of violence, particularly um, in our neighborhood, and what are things that we can do to help eradicate it? What can we do to stem the tide of some of this this violence that's, that's captivated the attention of the city? And so we're working to answer that right now. We are, I already have colleagues who are who have been studying this and are studying this issue, and we have other people who are working around this issue. I've done um, my own research around these things and done activism around these issues as well. And so that is an issue that we intend to work towards. And we have proposals in place, some of which are not ready for our public consumption yet. Um, but when they are, I'll be sure to let you know about that. But that is that is something that's deeply at the heart of some of the work that we want to do, particularly around the action of working with the community that we have discussed so far at this juncture. How will you use your research to go about implementing change? I know you're going to be doing a lot of research. There'll be studies that will be coming out. And a lot of us, we know, we cover them in the media and we see the studies and we talk about them. But How would you like to see your research used to actually bring about change? I'm glad you asked that question. So one of the things that we want to first do is to help fortify the understanding of what actually the problem is. And so as we're working as a society to try to correct these various problems and their various iterations, we want to actually have a firm grasp on what the actual issues are. We also want to do various forms of advocacy as well, so that when we're talking to public officials and civic leaders, they can make more informed decisions and operate with better information. And then we also want to work directly with helping to meet people's tangible needs. We have legal clinics on campus. We have after-school programs on campus. We have other public education programs that are on campus right now. We want to partner with them amplify some of that work, make some of their resources more readily available as well so that people with documented needs can have some of those met with some of the vast resources we have here at Temple. And so all of those things are ways that we envision being able to make a difference here um, with the Center for Anti-Racism Research. 
We both brought up uh, George Floyd, and as you were talking about uh, how you'd like to see your research used, I was thinking in terms of um, uh, the relationship between you know African Americans and uh, uh, the law enforcement across the country uh, in general. Um, is this an area that you think the research will be able to you know help along the lines of maybe making some some changes and advancements in those areas? I certainly hope so. The disproportionate use of excessive force and sometimes lethal force that Black people in America face is something that is a deep concern of mine. It's something that my research has encountered and even something that my law practice has encountered as well. And so we often as a nation are galvanized around some of these high profile instances like Brianna Taylor or George Floyd or Amar, uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, so we've talked about many of those uh, in previous years, particularly um, when they happened in 2020. But the sad reality is that these instances keep happening. Police in America kill about three people a day. And a disproportionate amount of those people are Black and brown people. And those are just the people that we know of who are documented, who are killed. And many of them are still brutalized in ways that are just unbecoming for a civil society. And so we want to first help bring greater awareness to the issues look at some of the prevailing factors. And we also want to propose solutions about how we can go about better facilitating this dynamic. So we have people across the spectrum as it relates to policing in America and there. Um, some of my colleagues who advocate for abolition and the like, but right now we have police. And while we have police, we need to find a better way to allow for them to police our communities and hold them accountable when they fall short of their duties when they when they abuse their power when they brutalize people we have to have meaningful ways to do that and so we our our work is 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 deeply concerned with that i personally am, am concerned with that and so those those are certainly issues that we ex- expect to work around and to help to address as well when do you think uh we will actually see real change and and I'm asking this because I'm 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 thinking of unconscious bias and conscious bias people growing up with a preconceived notion about an entire group of people and the cycle just continues and and continues and I'm I'm wondering you know we without breaking that cycle I don't know if we're ever going to really see that real and lasting change so the hope is that we see it in our lifetime but I'm committed to working towards working for a better day, even if I don't see it. Some of my heroes from history are people who risked their lives for a better day that they did not see. There are people who fought to see the end of slavery who did not see its end. There are people who fought to see the end of Jim Crow who did not see it end, and so on. And so my hope is that we see this in our lifetime. And it begins, I think, just as what you were saying, that getting people to clearly see the issue and to begin to not only clearly see the issue, issue, but have a commitment towards changing what is happening. Because ultimately, we are still living in the aftermath of people transported to this country and treated like merchandise and handled as property. And their descendants and their descendants descendants treated like property. And then their descendants denied every meaningful opportunity and access to the various facets of society. We're still dealing with that on top of the genocide of the indigenous people of this land. 
That is our nation's original sin, and it has deep and resounding implications for our current environment. And until we reckon with this is who we are, this is where we came from, and this is the aftermath of it, until we reckon with that, we will not see change. And so that's why we're committed to helping understand what these issues are, where they come from, what their implications are, and what are ways that we can work towards eradicating them at the individual level, but also at the systemic and structural level as well. Awesome. Excellent. Excellent. You know, I, I, I'm i just thinking of uh, people, you know, who say, you know, you, you guys should forget about this. Um, we didn't cause this. We didn't do this. This isn't our <laughs> fault. We need to move on. Just move on and forget it. But it, it really needs to be understood what Deep, lasting wound, something that we just can't put on the back burner and forget and move on because it affects our everyday lives. It really affects who we are and how we how we move. It does. And the fissures that we have in society emanate from that history. And beyond that, too, so many people look at the plight of Black people in America and opine that it's from some type of pathological deficiency. Black people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They they don't work as hard. They have more proclivity towards violence and criminality. All of those things are false. And the current disenfranchisement of Black people in America, all of it stems from racism finding its way into our systems and structures and finding new ways to recreate itself when we find various forms of reform or change systems names and things like that. And so you can look at almost any facet of society and point towards that. Medicine, law, education, housing, all of those things have the legacy of shadow slavery. And we see its vestiges every day. And so regardless of whether people want to talk about them, people have to live that reality. And while people are living that reality, we have to find a way to combat it and create better. Timothy, what is an Afrofuturist and how (laughs) will it be used in the new center? So we actually have one of the preeminent Afrofuturist scholars in our department, Dr. Ronaldo Anderson. So I will allow him to better describe the shape and the course of of the discipline of Afrofuturism, but it, it fundamentally looks at how we can conceive of the future from an African centered lens. What does it mean for Black people to exist in the future? And and what type of ways can we carry forth and channel our histories and our customs, our traditions, our insights into a new day and imagine what the future will look like? And so Dr. Ronaldo Anderson is working very closely with that idea. Like I said, he's one of the leaders of the intellectual discipline. And as it relates to that, I plan to work with him in in ways of conceiving how we can do programming and scholarship around Afrofuturism as well. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, what's your ultimate hope for this center? My ultimate hope for this center is that we create a day that we don't need the center. Mm. And so I... I always start there. I am thrilled to do the work. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm glad that I've been entrusted with this this weighty responsibility. But ultimately, our hope is that we don't have to do the work of anti-racism anymore, that we can get to a place where we are acknowledged as people. As Dr. Asante and Dr. Nadav talk about in their new book, that we can 
ascend above some of these racial hierarchies that we can dismantle the racial ladder and that people can be people. And we don't have to look at these arbitrary classifications that have no bearing in science, but have deep and lasting social impacts. That's, that's functionally the work that we're trying to do. And so a lot of that is about shaping the discourse of scholarship, talking about racism and anti-racism work. Some of that is about fortifying the public's understanding about what we're talking about. And some of that is about working with people who've been impacted by uh, and, and harmed by racism and looking for ways that we can remedy the harm that they've suffered. Okay. Well, Timothy, you are, of course, very active in your community, not just in the realm of civil rights and fighting racism and teaching, but uh, you like to pick up the mic on occasion, from what I understand. <laughs> and uh, this is and true. <laughs> tell me about uh, your, your musical interests. So I like to say that I am a civil rights attorney, a professor of Africology and African-American studies, author and contributing writer. But before I wrote books and essays, before I taught at universities, before I practiced law, I rapped. And so um, for me, it's, it's something that began as a love for hip hop and as a culture and the music that it creates. And it's something that grew into something larger than that. So a significant amount of my scholarship has dealt with hip hop being a microcosm of the Black experience and a continuation of African-derived aesthetics. And so all of it began, though, with just me rapping. And so I just basically I started rapping and never stopped and have found ways to incorporate it into other forms of work that I do. And I often tell people that a lot of the skill sets that emerge from that have found other ways into my professional work. And so the ability to step on stage is very analogous to me stepping into a classroom and, and teaching or stepping behind a lectern and doing public lectures or stepping into the courtroom and advocating for someone. Writing songs at and, and distilling insights and making connections and trying to make points is very similar to some of the writing that I do as well. And so that's that that <laughs> that's a lot of the rapping that I do. And so my my music finds ways to capture uh, my life and the world as I see it and uh, how I believe to go about making it a better place. Have you ever rapped for your students? I do, actually. Really? So, so what happens invariably every semester is somebody finds out I rap. They may Google me or they may have stumbled upon something somewhere or something like that. And so I never plan for it. But what ends up happening is that they'll ask me. And so I'll say, let's turn a beat on. And I say, you know, if somebody raps, you know, we can do a little cypher. So we do that in class. And we've had a lot of fun with it over the years. Revolt TV came and did a segment on the class a few years ago. And so um, we, we rapped in class as a part of that segment. I have a former student who is a Grammy-nominated uh, audio engineer and producer, and he owns a studio here in Philadelphia. And so he comes once a semester and talks about his work. And one of the, one of the really innovative and exciting things that we do when he comes is oftentimes he'll bring his equipment and we'll make a song in class. And so wow. we just did this about so we just did this about two weeks ago. His name is Ben Thomas, and so he'll come to class and. He has all of his equipment in his backpack and he'll set it up and then we'll look for volunteers and he'll make a beat right there in front of us. And about 10 minutes later, he'll solicit volunteers and we record from there. And, and 
kind of do that. But yes. So the short answer is yes. I do rap in class. I don't rap in class every day. <laughs> but at least once before the semester is over, I find time to rap for class. Okay, cool. And are there going to be any ties to your music and this center at all? I don't know how you marry it all together, but I'm sure there's a way. I mean, there, it's possible in, in that I do plan to do public events and the like. And I think there's opportunity at times to bring various artists to campus and things like that, particularly as thought leaders, because one of the things I want to do is to reimagine what we look at as experts and who we assign thought leaders, because I think at times we in academia have archaic notions about who can be an expert on various matters. And even at times just diminishing um, practical uh, and, and experiential knowledge and so I think that there are ways that we can amplify that. So we might do that. A few people have suggested we make an anti-racism EP or something like that and bring artists together. I don't know if that'll happen, but I mean, I think there is, at least will be room at times to incorporate music in some of the work that we do. Okay. Well, the opportunities are wide open for the center. We've been talking with Timothy Welbeck, who's going to be heading up Temple University Center for Anti-Racism Research, and uh, that should be up and running and ready to go this fall. Timothy, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. 30 Seconds to Second Chances, brought to you by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Abdul Kareem Salahuddin was near death in 2014. I needed to get a liver transplant. At the same time, Carol McLeod's son had a seizure. Brian was declared brain dead. Carol, an Irish Catholic, decided to donate his organs. That's something that he would have wanted. Kareem, a devout Muslim, received Ryan's liver. God orchestrated this thing for us to come together. Now, their family. He's my older adopted son. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. The Lest We Forget Museum of Slavery on Germantown Avenue in Philadelphia provides a unique historical perspective into the reality of the enslaved. Sharaday Howard sits down with the curator Gwen Ragsdale to talk about the museum and her family's ties to Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Massacre. Just as Black History Month winds down, the debate on critical race theory is heating up across the nation. And Gwen Ragsdale, curator of the Lest We Forget Slavery Museum in Germantown, says now's the time to teach our youth about racism, not through fantasy, but with hard-hitting facts. Because critical race theory isn't just Black history, it's American history. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Gwen. Thank you. Now, Gwen, you say right now's the moment. It's absolutely critical that we teach our youth the truth about our history. It's more important now than ever. Because if we don't, we're going to be raising a generation of young people who don't know their history. One of the things that I always comment on is that what I share is not black history. It's American history. And you can't talk about American history and ignore the years of enslavement of millions of enslaved Africans. They need to know this part of American history. If it is disturbing, it should be. That means that you're a human being. All right. They need to know this history. Why do you think teaching critical race theory has become so politicized? Politicians, legislators, everyone's got something to say about it. Why do you think it's got everyone so heated? Understand that critical race theory didn't even become a thing until after the killing of George Floyd. When young people saw that, it alarmed them. So much so that they started marching all over the world. All right. And did you notice who many of those marches were? Many of them were white millennials 
who were outraged with what they saw. They couldn't believe their eyes. When their parents saw their reaction, they got scared. And they realized that these young people don't need to know this history. Because if they knew this history, things might change, all right? So that's why they adopted this critical race theory, which isn't a thing. They don't teach it in school. And you say when critical race theory is taught, it's usually in law schools. So why is it so important that when you talk to these students and you give these tours at the museums, you give them the hard-hitting facts? You don't mince words. I purposely do that because I am an advocate of what I'm saying, you know. Our young people really need to know this history. It's not something that should be hidden. It's not something that should be, you know, uh, pushed aside and said, well, that was then, this is now. No, this is now, all right? What is happening in our communities now started as a result of aspects of slavery, all right? So it's important that our young people know where it comes from, knows how it continues to impact American society. And you say that was the inspiration behind this museum. The inspiration was my husband, quite frankly. He's the one who founded the museum. He started collecting slave artifacts when he was just a young boy after he found a slave shackle in his great uncle's trunk. That first shackle was what inspired him to want to collect more slave hardware, as we called it. Shackles, branding irons, and other forms of ironware that were used on enslaved Africans, brought to America and held in bondage for hundreds of years. And you say there's a direct connection between not knowing our history and what's going on in the streets of every major city across the country, including Philadelphia. And when you take people through the tour of your museum, the Lest We Forget Slavery Museum, you make a point of directing students to a picture of a black man with his brain being shackled. Why? Oh, yes, that the particular one. Really, I share that. It's called mental slavery because we're not walking around in physical shackles anymore. You know, but it doesn't mean that slavery is over or we're not being impacted by uh, slavery. We are. And when you open the uh, door that piece of art sits on, there are obituaries of young black men who were killed recently. They weren't killed by white cops. They weren't killed by uh, uh, um, white people at all. They were killed by others. I point out today, you have brothers killing brothers as a result of mental slavery. They don't know their history, and because they don't know their history, they feel that it's okay to pick up a gun and shoot somebody, all right? It's almost become genocidal. We have got to stop this. We have got to stop our young men from killing each other, all right? We must learn from our history, as I constantly say, lest we forget. And you have a direct connection to a really important point in American history, the Tulsa Massacre and Black Wall Street. Can you tell me how your family's connected? Actually, it was my husband's family. My husband's family was involved in the uh, Tulsa race riots, which was called Black Wall Street. It was a neighborhood in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Greenwood. It was an all-black town, an all-black successful town where they had their own stores, their own banks, their own everything and racist whites burned it down just to stop black advancement. My husband's family owned the mortuary business in Tulsa at the time. We were featured in a documentary that was shown on PBS, and you can actually see a picture of one of my husband's relatives standing in front of one of the uh, hearse in front of the building where it says Ragsdale's and Son. 
And your family, they lost everything. They lost the business, they lost the building, but they found a way to come back. Unlike so many others, they rebounded. The business has since been rebuilt. Two exist today, one in Oklahoma, Ardmore, Oklahoma to be exact, and the other one is in San Diego, California. So it just shows that entrepreneurship runs very deep in the Ragsdale clan. And you talk about your connection to Black Wall Street, your connection to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the race riots, because it's about thriving. It's about showing the Black societies then and now can thrive. But you say it's also about addressing that uneven playing field. Why? Because history is still being created. History is being created every day. Because people need to know it. Mm -hmm. We all need to share our family history. I always tell young people, I said, if you have the luxury of having grandparents and more importantly, great-grandparents, you have living history right there in front of you. And it's important that you know as much as you can from your elders and your family. So I tell them, the next time you have a family outing, turn your recorder on on your cell phone and sit next to Aunt Mabel or Uncle Benny and start asking them open questions, all right? Like ask them how far they went in school. If they told you they only went to fourth grade, that will open it up to another question. You can say, why? Maybe they'll tell you that because they had to go work in the uh, fields. But if they told you that they went to college, you're really going to want to know that history because that means that you come from a family who were able to achieve, all right? Unfortunately, when our family members die, they take our family history with them. And it's not doing us any good laid out in the cemetery. We don't have uh, the luxury of going back to Africa and learning what villages we came from because slavery interrupted our history. So we have to recreate our history. And why is it important to you to share your personal family history and your connection to Tulsa, Oklahoma? Well, for me, it's important that people know, and particularly my children and my grandchildren know, that we come from a long line of entrepreneurs. That lets them know that they too can become entrepreneurs. You know, Uncle Bub, who we realized was born into slavery, was an entrepreneur. He actually leased himself out to white farmers in the area to plow small portions of their land. He told my husband that when he was a young boy, he had an old mule. But when that old mule died, Uncle Bub took that harness and put it on his back and and, and uh, uh, plowed that land with the strength of his own body. That shows that Uncle Bub was not only strong, but he was an entrepreneur. You say teaching the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma and Black Wall Street wasn't just about teaching that black business could thrive and was thriving, but about how quickly it could be snatched away and with it generations of wealth and prosperity. And you say we're still seeing it today with regard to gentrification in black neighborhoods across Philadelphia, across the country. Here we are in 2022 and we're talking about first. Right now we're getting ready to have the first black woman inducted into the Supreme Court. How many white men came before her, all right? You're hearing first all the time. We should be the 31st, you know, because of the fact that we have what it takes to be leaders. We have what it takes to be entrepreneurs. Our young people need to know this. I have a a board here which shows black inventors and black uh, entrepreneurs, you know, like Dr. Gladys West, inventor of GPS technology, all right? And many other people, all right? Our young people need to know our history so that they can, in fact, learn from it 
and repeat it, quite frankly. You want them to repeat it. We have no reason to be ashamed of slavery. We should know it backwards and forwards so that they can find the strength that they need to move forward and be successful in today's environment. So let's talk about leveling the playing field and why it's necessary. Because people need to see the inequities and not just education, but the way that we see ourselves. Because you say seeing is believing. If a black student can see a black successful merchant, a black successful actor, a black successful scientist, they can see themselves that way too. You're talking about gentrification, gentrification of the mind, gentrification of posterity. And you say it's been happening all along. This isn't new. And it's important to know that there were more towns like Black Wall Street, you know, all around the country, Rosewood, there was a town in Florida that was burned down. It was the first incorporated all-black town called Eatonville, Florida, all right? Eatonville was burned down by racist whites because of their advancement. It stopped black advancement. Do you know, and the name was changed, today Eatonville, Florida is called Kissimmee, Orlando. You know what is in Kissimmee, Orlando? Now, Gwen, you put me on the spot. I'm thinking kissing me Disney World. Am I right? You got it. And we're seeing so much gentrification now across the country, and especially in Philadelphia. Think about the, the land, how, how wealthy that land is. Even um, Central Park. Central Park was once an all-black neighborhood. It was called Seneca Village. All right? It was taken over by whites who wanted to make it a park. There's so many different parts of the world that you can think about, parts of the United States and the world, in fact, that were totally run by black people. But it was always done to stop black advancement. Most black people can't go and say, well, my grandfather owned the uh, shoe company up the road. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps to become the president of that company. Well, good for you. Our grandfather didn't even have boots, much less straps to pull himself up with. And we can see so many examples of gentrification throughout the United States. We can see it right outside of our window, and you have to. I can personally speak to gentrification because our first building was located in Port Richmond. We lost that building due to gentrification. They started building businesses around or homes around the corner from where we were located. We couldn't keep up with the rising property values and lost our building. And that was in 2008. All right. Unfortunately, we were closed for a while until we were able to find a smaller spot where we are now in Germantown. And now that you're in Germantown, you're in great company. It has one of the richest collections of black history in Philadelphia. We're grateful to be in Germantown because we're surrounded by other museums related to slavery, such as the Johnson House, which is a former site where Harriet Tubman hid slaves, and the Cliveden, which was owned by John Chu who was George Washington's attorney and a slaveholder. You can go and spend a day in Germantown and visit all of the 13 museums that are all related. They're part of what is called Historic Germantown. We're getting ready to do a program, gonna be a Zoom program called uh, Black History in Germantown. Just Google Black History in Germantown and you might be able to pick up on it. And you're also our newsmaker because the city called on you specifically to help them with their Harriet Tubman tribute outside of City Hall. Well, first of all, they uh, asked us because they have a statue of Harriet Tubman that sits outside of the uh, uh, City Hall. It's a beautiful statue of Harriet. 
And you notice I'm calling her Harriet. She's like a celebrity to me. She's like Cher. She just needs one name. Everybody knows the rest of her name. But they asked us if we would loan some of our artifacts to the exhibit that sits just outside the mayor's office during the time that, that the Harriet's going to be on display here. It's here until March 31st. So if you just go and visit City Hall, you'll see our exhibits on loan from the Lest We Forget Slavery Museum. There are a pair of uh, shackles, wrist shackles, and a middle passage shackle. Harriet was such an amazing woman. I mean, when you think about the things that she, she's done, you almost, it's hard to believe, you know, but she did some incredible things and lived a full life. She died a natural death and um, should be celebrated. I uh, was hearing for a while that she's supposed to appear on the $20 bill. I hope that eventually comes true because she certainly deserves it. So let's end this with you talking directly to Philadelphia youth. That student of color is standing in front of you. What would you say to them? Keep looking forward. Keep looking forward. Keep moving forward. Continue to move forward, Black Philadelphia. Continue to look forward. We are standing on the shoulders of some great people who made a way out of no way. Things aren't necessarily better. Well, actually they are. They are far better than they were during the times when many of our people who came up in such oppression that you wonder how Harriet and many of the others made it. So we continue, we have to continue to make it better so that our young people can stand on our shoulders the way we're standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. Thank you so much for joining Thank me. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're welcome. Thank you. The Lest We Forget Museum of Slavery is located at 5501 Germantown Avenue. And if you'd like to get a look at that traveling Harriet Tubman tribute, along with artifacts from the museum, it'll all be on display outside of City Hall throughout the month of March and then travels to Cape May this summer. 30 Seconds to Second Chances, brought to you by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Timmy Nelson had zero symptoms when he learned he was in kidney failure in 2013. Sometimes that's the case. It just happens. My mother's the same situation. He spent three years on dialysis. His focus was on his health. Also staying positive about it mentally. So when he got word he had an organ donor, he was ready. I woke up with a brand new kidney, which happened to be my 60th birthday. And now he's paying it forward. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. Hey, what up? It's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Happy last weekend of Black History Month, y'all. It's been such an honor to celebrate the stories of our local history makers and game changers throughout this month. Our last BLH Changemaker is actually two people. They're identical twins and both doctors. They are bridging Philly by addressing health disparities in underserved communities around the city. Here's more from the Twin Sister Docs. So let's start out by talking about Twin Sister Docs. I noticed you all have a very nice following there and it seems to be picking up a lot of traction. How did you all get the idea sort of that you were doing something special and that you needed to use um, social media to leverage that? So in general, you know, Dr. Warlaw and I, you know, we come from underserved neighborhoods. We practice in an underserved neighborhood. 
And we realize that, you know, especially in the African-American community and other communities, people are more comfortable with someone who looks like them and someone they think that they can relate to. So we decided that we wanted to take our platform outside of our offices and, and broaden it to, you know, a local, regional, and ultimately national and, and even more ultimately global platform um, to, to broaden our net to address healthcare inequities, healthcare disparities. And the main goal of Twin Sister Docs is really to provide accurate information in a manner that the average individual can understand so it can spark a conversation with their physician. Doc, I heard, you know, I heard these twin sister docs talking about breast cancer. Is it time for me to get my mammogram? Or doc, you know, they were talking about diabetes and they said something about an A1C. Can we talk about that? So that's really the, the goal of twin sister docs. We, we, um, our mission is based off of three T's, trust, translate, transform. So we are trusted messengers because if you don't trust the messenger, you'll never hear the message. So we're trusted messengers and we provide accurate information. And that in turn translates into action as people are empowered to be to to take more action with their health care. And that leads to transformational outcomes and look, looking to improve the overall health of, of the entire community. Again, we, we've been we've been doing this for 20 years, but. Just about a, about two years ago, we decided to ele- elevate our platform and, and, and you know, with, with, with social media and, and trying to reach people at a larger, a larger net, throughout, just throughout a larger net. And we also not only focus on health care and equities and um, quality health care, we also focus on mentorship and increasing and addressing the issues of cultural competency and diversity in medicine, because Unfortunately, as Dr. McDonald and I sit here, we represent 2% of the physician population in the U.S. as African-American females. And so we have got to increase those numbers um, and we need to diversify medicine by introducing it at all levels, um, you know, in, in elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools, colleges, STEM courses, STEM programs, um, and making sure that students are aware that these are goals that they can reach. And that was, you know, that, that's one of our platforms as well. Dr. McDonald and I are the only physicians in our family. So mentorship is it was big for us and it still is big for us because we still have mentors to this day. So uh, part of our commitment is to help those who um, we need to make it into the medical field as well. And so I was going to ask, you know, when did you all start the platform? But it sounds like you started the platform just a couple of years ago. That would have been during the height of the pan- pandemic, right? So the platform is really to discuss things like, you know, increased awareness of colon cancer and cervical cancer and diabetes and heart disease. But then, as we all know now, almost two years into this, COVID became the 800-pound gorilla that we had to address all the time as we were learning about this disease process and learning about the importance of masks and learning about the treatments and learning about the symptoms and then the vaccine. So COVID has been such a fluid situation as we've been kind of learning as we go along that it has consistently been the top, you know, our, our top, top topic. Yeah. You mentioned that you all yourselves are from an underserved community. Tell us exactly about um, where you're from. We're from, we're from Strawberry Mansion, um, North Philadelphia here in, in Philadelphia, uh, born and raised. And our family, we still have family um, in that area. We still have roots in the area. And as we all know that uh, Strawberry Mansion is an area that has its social and economic challenges. Um, you know, they deal a lot with 
you know, there's a lot of food insecurity and housing insecurity and, and job insecurity that has to be addressed there. But that is our home. And uh, we came from a, a, a structured family, you know, our, our mother and father who were key in making sure that we went to the um, best schools. They realized very early on that the quality of our education was based on your zip code. And they, they, they were really advocates in making sure that we got a great education. And we, and not only did we come from a tight family, the whole neighborhood was a tight community, right? So we came from a small block. Everybody knew each other and the village, the village was really, you know, looking out for each other. So, and, and that was important. And that's why it's important for us to make sure that our community, our practices are in communities that is, that serves the, pretty much the communities that help raise us and help mold us into the people that we are today, because it really was a, an outreach of our, of, of our communities as we were, were growing up. And we're dedicated to making sure that those folks have quality health care. So we are still, we very, we visit Strawberry Mansion very frequently. Uh, we still have a family, our family home is still in, in, in Strawberry Mansion, and we are still very much a part of that community. And so I work, I work with Temple Health, and my practice is at and, and um, nice town. It's in the one block down from Wayne Junction. Um, and I practice outpatient medicine there as a family physician. I see everyone from age zero to 110. I um, One of the joys of practicing family medicine is that I see multiple generations of families. Uh, on any given day, I can see five members from, from one family. Um, that not only helps to really see what's going on medically, but also address social issues that are, that are going on as well. Um, so that's where I am on a, on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> and, and I wonder, what do you think it is that has helped your success grow on your platform? What do you think it is that attracts people to Twin Sister Docs? I think part of it is, is that, you know, we're, we're kind of like the, 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 the girls next door, but we are also well-qualified, educated physicians who are the girls next door that people can and come and have a conversation with and ask questions. And that's really the purpose to make people feel comfortable to be able to ask questions and get their questions answered and allow them to, to become an advocate in their healthcare. Yeah, I just think that people, it's, it's we communicate in a way that makes people feel uh, comfortable with asking questions. And that's one of the key things with, with medicine. Um, being able to communicate with patients, allow patients to be able to ask questions, because really it's a team approach. It's not just the doctor making decisions. The uh, medical treatment plan can't uh, come together as well as it should without uh, accurate information from the patient or information from the patient. So allowing the patients to be able to, uh, you know, let their guard down and, and ask questions and, and feel comfortable asking questions and not feeling like, oh, I shouldn't ask that question because it might sound like a silly question or it might not be an appropriate question. And so um, I, I think that people find it easy to ask questions and, and talk with us. And they appreciate that. And it's important for, for children to know, listen, we came from neighborhoods just like yours. So it's, it's possible. You know, we're, we're not coming from this, this area that you're not familiar with, or this area that's across the country or, you know, or six states away. No, we're from areas that you guys are from. So this is doable. Listening to you all reminds me of Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Yes, the first female Black doctor. Yes. yes. You all really uh, remind me of her in, in the way that you are working hard to bridge access, right? Do you all feel that you are making Black history? 
you, you have to because, you know, in this world of, unfortunately, we live in a world where inequity still exists. And unfortunately, African-Americans carry a heavy burden of many diseases. And we have, and a, and a lot of that has to do with lack of access to quality care or, um, you know, lack of access to proper food and nutrition, you know, so we have to make sure. Or education. We, and, yeah, we have or, to make or sure. Tech, or technologies. We have to make sure that we are addressing these things. And we also have to make sure that we are, because we make up such a small percentage of the physicians in the, in the United States, uh, until we can increase those diversity numbers, we have to, you know, another part of our, our, our platform is to, you know, make sure that all physicians are culturally competent because you have to understand the communities that you're serving and in, in order to, to be able to connect with them on the most effective and the most effective way. Um, so cultural competency is key in realizing that it is not just giving a diagnosis, giving a prescription and sending the patient out the door, but you have to, you know, really understand um, what these patients are experiencing, you know, what their daily lives include, you know, some of the challenges they're facing. So you can treat everybody you know, individually and be able to address those things head on. Higher consequences from that. So that that's why when we say people have to be um, culturally competent. Implicit bias has to be addressed because most people who are lacking cultural competency, who are um, showing um, implicit bias, they're not aware of that. Right. So those type of issues have to be addressed in a mandatory fashion, meaning they have to be included in curriculums, they have right. to be included in policies, you know, administration, have to be making sure that everybody is culturally competent and, and trained and make sure everybody's trained on implicit bias. So again, these things are happening on a, on a, on a regular basis and, and, and they have to be addressed. We just, you know, th- these are things that have to be addressed. You know, African-American children, newborns have an increased um, 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 mortality rate as compared to other other um, ethnic, ethnic groups. groups. So again, why 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 are these things why are these things occurring? So uh, it's a system wide problem that has to be addressed. It's not individual. So again, the solutions have to come system wide as well. Administration, um, hospital, um, every level of the hospital, every level of everybody who's involved in medicine needs to be aware of these issues and they have to be training protocols and policies in place to make sure that it's being addressed accordingly. Um, Thank you so much uh, for your time, for your service to the community. Is there a way that people can reach you? Is there anything that you have going on that you want the public to know about? This is your chance to plug. (laughs) Uh, You can reach us on all social media platforms at Twin Sister Docs, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you can also visit our website at thetwinsisterdocs.com. Um, our main um, projects that we're doing now is that we're doing vaccination clinics in the uh, schools, as, as we discussed, vaccine education awareness and, and access. Um, and we're just going to keep moving along as we continue to address these healthcare uh, disparities, increase equity, and make sure that we uh, continue to fight the fight. Yes. and and and, and hopefully encourage others that look like us to enter into the field of medicine. Right. We don't, we don't want to, you know, that 2% number has to change, yes. right. You know, we don't want to continue to still be, you know, considered the first or the few <laughs> or the, you know, we need to increase those numbers. That's it for our fairly rising change maker of the week. If you know someone we should highlight next, please let me know. I'm Antoinette Lee and you can reach me on Twitter at ARLE on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thank you for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. 
Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me, Raquel On Air. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.